0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to VUX World. Uh, I'm your host, Kane Sims, and uh, got a lovely discussion lined up for you today. We'll be speaking to Alan Nickel, the CEO of Raza, and we'll be climbing into all kinds of NLU-based uh, details, which I'm supremely looking forward to. Um, but before we do that, shout out to Deepgram and Symbol AI, our presenting sponsors. If you did join us for the webinar this Tuesday with Deepgram, you will have learned a hell of a lot about the technology uh, and about the way it works and about how you can use it effectively essentially training speech recognition models for your specific industry, for your specific use case uh, is an absolute must to get proper high accuracy into your NLU when we're going to talk about the impact potentially of feeding accurate information into an NLU system uh, in just a moment. To learn more about Deepgram and the ASR capabilities, please do go to deepgram.com forward slash VUX world. That is deepgram.com forward slash VUX world. And Symbol AI specializes in conversational intelligence. Their APIs allow you to build a whole manner of different capabilities for your audio and speech-based use cases. There's data within conversations that you probably don't even know exists. And what Symbol AI can do is help you access it. You can do things like speaker diarization, topic summarization. You can build your own agent assist capabilities with Symbol AI. You can do outbound dialers, voicemail detection, You know a whole, whole manner of, uh, of, of interesting use cases. So do check out symbol.ai if you're interested in exploring that. That's S-Y-M-B-L dot Uh, Quick shout out to uh, two events that we're doing. So the Deepgram event that we did was a a roaring success. Uh, I'll be speaking at an audio codes webinar this Tuesday and it's all about contact center automation. I'll put the link down there in the in the show notes, and it'll be on uh, on LinkedIn if you're if you're over there, and uh, and YouTube if you're there as well. Essentially, the, one of the biggest problems of automating call center conversations is actually that last mile getting those conversations live in a call center. Lots of organisations will kind of host a, a, a call on a number that they've procured from another service, and if you do that, you miss out on a whole bunch of metadata that is absolutely crucial to deliver a proper customer experience feeding context into the bot and sending people back to the right place when you want to escalate into an agent and things like that. And we're going to be covering some strategic tips and pointers for call center strategy, uh, roadmap planning, Uh, technology identification and all that kind of stuff as well as showing you how to implement this stuff into your call center uh, on your own without the need of any professional services from any company. Uh, So please do join us uh, next Tuesday. I'll just put the link in the uh, the show notes there. And also uh, another event that we're doing on April the 20th, this is with Core AI and I'll put the link down here again so you can get to it quickly, which is all about uh, is AI coming for your job? Uh, Essentially, the, the, the headlines would have you believe that AIs are taking over and a lot of people are going to be out of work because of it. But the reality is that most contact centers are not answering all the calls that they receive. The agents are overworked and there's a pretty poor customer experience. So we're going to be displ- exploring rather how AI technologies can be used to help your call center agents deliver more effective, more streamlined, and a better quality customer experience through agent assist technologies. That's going to be on April the 20th with Raj Kaneru, the CEO of of Core AI, and myself walking you through some of the key highlights and insights that you need uh, that you can benefit from taking on board if you want to implement this stuff in your call center, what the value is, how you go about implementing it, what the technology is, and all that kind of stuff. So I'll Hopefully, we'll see you there. Now, without further ado, let's welcome Alan Nicol of Raza onto VUX World. Alan, welcome. Hi, Ken. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us. I've been a long-time fan. What is it they say? Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller? Right. I've been following Raza for for a long time. I've seen, I think I've probably read almost every post that you've put out there. I've heard a lot of your interviews that you've done on uh, on other podcasts and, and various places. and that. So I am a genuine, genuine fan of Raza technology, your approach, the way you think about conversation-driven development, the way you approach educating the community and the whole philosophy behind the product. So I really appreciate you spending some time with us. Fantastic. Yeah,
1: that's, uh, that's great to hear. And thanks for the warm intro.
0: Yeah, nice one. I was at um I was at the uh European chatbot conference last not last week but the week before. And I would I think out of out of let's say I don't know how many talks it was, but let's say there was a number of talks that were about um Research. So universities presenting research into natural language processing technologies. There was a few examples of of companies that implemented either chatbots or voice bots or something similar. And I want to say that I would say there was about forty percent, maybe. This is just an arbitrary number, but there was a good proportion of them that mentioned raza by name as their technology choice. So you must be doing something right. That, that's fantastic to hear. And uh, yeah, no, are obviously
1: very glad to be so widely adopted and uh, and so broadly
0: adopted as well yeah yeah it's interesting um so i'm interested in in kind of like for, maybe for those that haven't come across raza there's a lot of people who listen to the show who are you know well versed in this kind of technology space but there's also people who are fairly new just getting their head around it or people who haven't implemented anything yet maybe assessing technology stuff like that i wonder if you can just kind of just give us a bit of a kind of high level what is raza and, and what makes it different
1: yeah, no, happily. Um I mean you just asked a founder to tell you why their startup is different. That's uh <laughs> you for hours on that. Um, yeah, so what Rasa is is um well the first thing is Rasa the open source framework, right? Which is a framework for building conversational applications that could be text, that can be voice. Um and so it's, you know, analogous to, you know, in web development, something like Django or Rails or something like that, right? It's the, the skeleton that you use to build an application. Um, it just happens to be in the domain of, of building conversational apps. Um, and then we have, you know, a, a platform on top of that, which uh, expands just the, the, that internal AI core uh, with all the workflows and, and everything else that you need in a larger team, um, you know, to practice. Uh, or to just put conversational AI
0: in production and, and operationalize it nice so you've got the open source but you've also got an enterprise version as of fairly recently what what's, what does the enterprise uh, thing do that the open source stuff doesn't
1: yeah um, so I mean a, a very simple way and this may be already leading into to conversations we're going to have later in the podcast but um, there are kind of two sides of the coin right so on the one hand, you've got um, this framework which creates your assistant based on some data, right? You've got some training data to, that, that goes into it. Um, but then the question is like, where does that come from? <laughs> In the ideal case, that comes from real conversations. And so that's, you know, part of what the tooling helps you do is uh, take the conversations that are happening and turn them back into data to feed back into your assistant, right? So it's kind of two halves of the same the same problem, um, but You know, beyond that, of course, the the open source framework is really only intended for developers to use, right? It's very code first. It's very code heavy. Um, You know, whereas the tooling, you know, the teams that we work with are very multidisciplinary, right? And, um, you know, as you know, very, very well, this is a nascent field. And so these job titles are constantly evolving. But you always have folks who are subject matter experts. You have folks who are doing part of the conversation design, whether they have that as a formal title or not. Um, you know, you have like a product owner type of persona, you might have like legal and compliance who weigh in on various things. So, you know, it takes a village, right? It takes a multidisciplinary team to, to ship production AI and it's not purely an engineering problem. Um, and so that's something we try and tackle with uh, with the tooling, with the, the full platform is bringing all of those folks together and giving everybody the ability to, to collaborate.
0: Right, I'm with you. Uh, interesting. So, so what would be kind of, I've never actually used the enterprise um, the enterprise version. So what would be an example of how that would work in practice? Let's say you've got a team, you've got a couple of engineers, maybe someone who who's responsible for design. Maybe you've got some kind of like QA people who want to do some testing. You might have an analyst or something like that that is responsible for like ongoing assessment and maintenance, stuff like that. Uh, and a product owner that kind of wants to just have some visibility over what's going on Maybe it's more, but like, let's just take a small team like that. What, how, how would the tool be used by those on a daily basis? Like, what features are, are for different groups, and and how does it manifest itself? If that makes sense. Yeah. No. Absolutely.
1: Um, so, on the uh, you know on the UI side, on the tooling side, we've got a bunch of things for um, you know, for example, like editing the the responses that your assistant sends. Right. You have like a rich editor where you can preview messages with buttons and, and, and images and that kind of thing. Um, you can review, you know, the training data that you've got. Um, we've run like a nightly analysis of your training data to see if there are you know, intents that are commonly confused or entities that are performing poorly. You can go and review those things. Um, and importantly, what you also have in the platform is uh, a stream of all the conversations that are happening, right? right. And so you can see okay, where are things going well, where are things not going well, right? You can set up all sorts of filters and automated tags to look out for certain things that are uh, that are important to you, right? Um, and then you can say, hey, look, um, uh, this type of conversation is behaving poorly, why is that, right? And it's like, oh, well, maybe, you know, this intent is poorly designed or it's just not uh, not performing very well, um, or maybe the copy of the response is, is you know, Suboptimal. it's really unambiguous, and it's causing people to ask questions or whatever else it might be, or it just might be, hey, users are asking for something that we haven't supported yet, right? You're learning so much from, mm. uh, from, from giving users access to a text box where they can say anything they want, right? I mean, that's the, that's the opportunity and the challenge of conversational AI, right? The opportunity is that people are telling you literally exactly what they want all the time in their own words. Uh, and the challenge is, is, is dealing with all of that, of course, gracefully, right? Um, and something that's that's quite unique about uh, the way that Rasa works is that you can do all of this nice collaboration in the UI, um, but the platform ultimately still goes back and treats Git as the source of truth, right? And that obviously is a natural progression for us because you know we started off as a developer tool, but it's actually something very, very powerful and it unlocks a lot of interesting things. Because what it, ma- what it means is that um, you get all the nice collaboration features and you get all the easy-to-edit UIs, but you retain all of the benefits of shipping software like a professional, right? I mean, if you think about, you know, the way that like Fortune 500 companies ship their mobile app and their website, right? They have CI-CD set up and they have automated tests and they do regressions, right? And it's not like they use, uh, you know, a WYSIWYG, uh, web editor to, to publish their website right like you've got to have some standards you've got to have some good software engineering practices right and so that's it's a fairly unique thing about Rasa is that uh, you get to retain all of that right um, while still getting the, the the editing and authoring capabilities on, on top of it.
0: Right, I am with you so, so it would be that um, correct me if I'm wrong Would it be so that you have, let's say, perhaps the less technical people working on the kind of like interface side of things with the dialogue management and and the kind of like, you know, the analysis and stuff. But you would also still require some technical engineers uh, in order to manage that back end Cord well, so is,
1: that, what right with that is like anyone can come in and, and modify if they've got the right permissions can come and modify things through the ui whether that's the flow whether that's the data for an intent you know whether that's the the pipeline that's used to train the nlu model whatever it might be um and you can save and, and, and edit and confirm those changes but the important thing is that that is fed back into and synced back into that git based workflow that developers use which means that you can trigger your usual deploy pipeline with all your safety guards in place, with all your tests running, you know, with all your automated deployments, if something goes wrong, you can roll back. Like all of these things that are absolutely, um, <laughs> I would say, it's table stakes for shipping software that touches a lot of your customers and is high stakes. Um, you get to you get to benefit from all of those things, right? You don't have to throw all of that away.
0: Mm, interesting that's very interesting um what are some of the kind of like use cases that you i mean i don't know how much i uh, don't know how you are to talk about specific examples of specific companies Now you've got a couple of labels on your website around t-mobile and and stuff like that uh recently made the gartner magic quadrant as well congratulations on that oh, yeah. um, which is usually a symbol that a sign that that there's a good amount of clients and that the clients are not dropping by the wayside. They're utilizing the technology and it's being proved out. So what are some examples of some like really good use cases that you're kind of like, you know, when you're in a meeting with a potential large client, what are the ones that you go to and say, look what such and such has done?
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I think... Maybe to give a sense of where Raza shines, it's also helpful to to give a bit of context of you know where, where we started out, right? So Alex, my co-founder and I um, were developers building chatbots. <laughs> that's like that's what we were doing before. Um, and you know, we were using the APIs that were available at the time um, and trying to build some more sophisticated AI systems, right? And what we realized very, very quickly was that there were all these like NLU APIs you know there was really nothing for building multi turn conversations right there wasn't anything for going beyond the basics right and so we saw an opportunity i mean you talked about research right um we kind of went and looked and there's you know three decades of of research on on how to build dialogue systems that that we found right and we were like well why aren't there any products that make use of this stuff right <laughs> that seems bad so wouldn't it be cool if we could you know build a library? that's intended not for researchers but for people who are building products that makes use of some of this research like uh, some of the state-of-the-art stuff right mm-hmm. and let's not worry about being you know optimized for that very first hey i'm user chat bots right but let's optimize for hey you've, you've done that you've hit the end of the road with the simple stuff and now you're ready to do it properly now you're ready to do it mm-hmm. for real and so that, that's how the company started. We always say, like, what are the real problems? What are the big challenges when you're trying to do this? Not like, what is the fastest way to, to build a chatbot in three minutes? But when this is a, a big, sophisticated deployment um, and, and you know, there's real investment behind it, what are the tools you need? What's the infrastructure you need, right? And so that, you know, that, that came initially through our uh, developer community, right? Building really for developers who, had built the first chatbot and we're ready to do something more sophisticated. Um, but it's also now true that you know, we're, we're an enterprise company. Um, those are also the enterprises that we work with and the ones where browser really shines. right? So I, I kind of think of three stages that large companies go through when they think about conversational AI, right? One is exploration, right? And this, you know people get curious about chatbots at various points, right? 2016 was obviously the first real big wave, right? Of the the really early adopters. But, um, you know, it's kind of, hey, what could this technology mean for us? What might a chatbot mean for our business, right? Let's let's build some POCs and see what it could mean. And then usually one or two of those projects will get some traction, right? And that brings you to step two where you've got, you know, a tactical implementation for one part of your business, one page on your site, or maybe you've got like two or three, and they're all built with different vendors, um, you know, and they're all doing their thing, but you know, you also realize that none of these are are the other platform that's going to take you somewhere else. Right. Mm. And then three is you kind of look at that and you say, look, actually, conversational AI is going to be a key way that our customers are going to interact with us in the future. Right. And the way that we see them talking to us is not, hey, I'm talking to this specific line of the business. They're talking to the brand, right? Because in, as a customer, like, I don't care if I'm talking to the whatever department, right? Or whatever, like, sub-business or, or, or segment, right? You know, to me, it's this brand, whatever it might be that I'm interacting with. And I expect them to know everything about me that I that I have told them some part of this brand. And I want that holistic experience. And so when you say, actually, what we want to build is... You know a digital concierge or a, a, a you know a fully encompassing assistant that spans the lines of business that we have that is a primary way for our customers to interact with us that's when you start to look at these platforms and you start to have very different criteria right you're looking for different things from that first kind of initial deployment prototyping phase and so that's where browser really shines because then you go oh actually no yeah this is like we want a piece of infrastructure, right? We don't want like a a little box where we can tweak things. We want a piece of infrastructure we can deploy and integrate with other systems. Um, We want to be able to ship this mission critical application the way we ship other mission critical software. Right. And we're going to have a multidisciplinary team working on this together, not just like a few people, you know, clicking together uh, an experience. Right. And so you've got all these different dimensions of complexity You've got multiple different parts of the assistant, you've maybe got it in multiple languages, you've got it in multiple channels. And when you're, when you're ready for that level of strategic investment in conversational AI, then that's where Razor really shines and, and, and stands out from the competition in a big way, because it enables you to do things that you simply cannot do with other platforms, which are more optimized for you know, that initial ease of use and, and simplicity event. Right?
0: Mm, interesting so would your predominant clients be companies that have done some degree of experimentation and almost they're beginning to mature They understand the technology they understand the, the, the core kind of principles they've got some experience and resources and, and they they want to get rid of the kind of like toys and, and start. Doing things properly is that?
1: Yeah, it's it's almost like a linear
0: function. Like the more <laughs> the more experience you conversation like have conversational AI, the more you appreciate Rasa. I would say. Interesting. Interesting. So you mentioned some of the things there that large enterprises value: things around being able to utilize this as a core piece of infrastructure, have something that they can fully control and manage, have something that is part of their kind of deployment pipeline that meets their security standards and QA standards that are already in place with other, uh, other, other software. What are some of the other things perhaps that that enterprises are using as their decision-making criteria when when they're when they're kind of deciding whether to use Raza or similar tools?
1: Yeah. So I think compared to other open source companies, right? If I think about the, the, the great open source success stories that I admire and look up to, right. Um, uh, you think about MongoDB and Elastic, right. And all these fantastic companies. Um, I think there are two really key differences to, to Raza and our market compared to other open source companies. The first is that it's really not an IT decision. Right, like I don't think anyone outside of engineering is going to have an opinion on whether you use MongoDB or another NoSQL database. Right, mm. that would be madness. Of course, with when you're choosing a conversational AI platform, there are lots of people with skin in the game. So mm. it's a multi-stakeholder decision, right? And everybody has to have their needs met to some extent, and everybody has uh, an important contribution to make, right? And so it's not a question of just convincing the engineering uh, mm. segment. The second piece i would say is that compared to other products other open source products like the open sourceness of rasa is really important to the quality of of the user experience right the fact that you can hack it the fact that it's incredibly modular the fact that you can you know swap out any language model you can say i will use Bert, i want to use gpt2 oh no there's the next cool thing that's just been released i'm going to use that instead I'm going to use the French, French, French version, I'm going to use the distilled, lightweight, multilingual version of whatever it might be, right? You can, you know, or you can build your own, right? You can you can plug and play your NLU pipeline and NLU architecture. Um, and you can build on top of, you know, all the great developments that happen in open source. And also you can customize how the dialogue management works, how the NLG works, whatever else it might be, right? Because um, there are so many hard problems in conversational AI, and there are so many things where we haven't found a great general solution, right? Mm. Like, what's the best, most generic mechanism for doing intelligent fallback and, like, refining, taking your best guess of what the user says and refining that, right? The, there isn't yet a perfect solution, right? But if you have a solution that works really well for your domain or your use case, you just, like, hack it into Rasa and a couple lines of code, and now you have something <laughs> that works great. You're not waiting for us. You know, you're not filing a ticket, waiting for us to implement this, and us deciding that it's not general enough, and then putting it in the backlog. Right? You can just go and do it. And so, you know, the the majority of our customers have some kind of customization. They've either built a custom component or they somehow leverage that. Right? And I think that's so deeply foundationally different to MongoDB. Right? Like, if you have custom MongoDB code, something has gone very deeply wrong. <laughs> in your organization, right? That is not something that you you should you should be doing. Uh, Whereas with Rasta, it's it's perfectly natural to extend it also because it is a framework and not just a data store or a simple API or something like that. It's a framework that you're using to build an app. So, you know, it's also perfectly reasonable that you might wish wish to to customize that. Um, And then that level of, you know, control and transparency that it gives you over the AI components, over how the machine learning works, right? You can choose the different components. You can do, like, the most rigorous analysis you want in the world of you know, how your model's performing, where it's performing well, where it's performing poorly, right? You have the full, full data science system at your disposal. You know, you have the data, you have the open source code, you can write some scripts, you can build notebooks, all those kinds of things. So um, in terms of not having a black box NLU model that you hit a train button and goodness knows what happens and goodness knows if it's any good, you, <laughs> you can really pick apart, make your own customized Deeply understand its its performance, and same for the dialogue management components and, and NLG and everything else, right? And again, those things might not seem they might seem like nice to haves if you're new to conversational like AI, but once you're deep into it and you have some experience, you realize that actually you need those things to build the kinds of you know experiences that that people are really are trying to achieve when they want to build a you know, a a marquee flagship conversational assistant that gets the brand name attached to it, you know, gets put front and center on the website or the mobile app or something like that. It's got to be a great experience. It can't be like an okay experience, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it they wouldn't, they wouldn't get used otherwise, would it, you know? Um, it's interesting hearing you speak there about, you know, the the flexibility, the composability of the solution. I've been thinking a lot lately about, um, you know, the kind of resources and teams it needs to stand this stuff up, the kind of technology that's available out there in the market, and how different types of technology fit different types of companies. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with, you know, if you're a relatively immature organization, and a, you know, I don't mean necessarily childish, but uh, a, a company <laughs> who's never a company who's never really done it before. You know, the the, tep- the typical kind of go-to solution is something like dialogue flow or perhaps like a low-code drag-and-drop builder, where you don't really actually need to know that much about what's happening technology wise you don't really need to know about an NLU It would help be helpful if you knew about like you know training data and all that kind of stuff but you can still cobble something together um that's obviously miles different to deploying something as you said that flagship enterprise assistant that is multi-channel covering a bunch of different use cases you know totally different beast and so i've been thinking a lot about like the team requirements to set something like this up because i think that a lot of these low code drag and drop builders and i think that they definitely do have a place and they certainly democratize access to pretty powerful technology but there may be a limit in the way that it's packaged in terms of your ability to be able to get a a high high degree of accuracy out of it and so Hearing you talk about Raza, it sounds as though definitely if someone's going to use Raza, they absolutely need some engineers and some technical um, skill sets within their team. People who understand conversational AI infrastructure and, and understand their way around an NLU model, understand their way around a dialogue manager, understand the real component parts in, in, in great detail. I'm wondering whether I could, you could share your thoughts on, you know, what does the ideal team look like? Is it predominantly, you know, engineers and developers that, that use Raza? Is is that the current makeup of, of most teams? Is it design, development, working in tandem together? Like what what sort of where 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 are the data scientists and all of this? Like what's your general observations on the type of teams that are using Raza and the makeup of them?
1: Yeah. Um, so, I mean, obviously, as you go through different stages, you have different sizes of teams, right? And the typical small team we see starting with Russell will be like three or four people, right? And it'd be one or two engineers, one of whom has a little bit of data science chops. Uh, and then, you know, one or two folks who are, you know, there to care about the user experience, to design it, to think about it, right? And that is... You know two very broad personas and you know as this field is, is quite nascent uh, people might come from different backgrounds and have different types of experience and all sorts of things that's a kind of small team um you know a typical team uh you know would be like on the order of eight folks or so right and then you start to see that you have a significant number of folks who aren't engineers um you know thinking about these things and then we see really large teams right whether you have a you know, some of our large enterprises that we work with, um, where there's really a hub and spoke model, right? And so there's a central team who are like the deep experts in Rasa, the deep experts in NLP. And then there are sort of feature teams that are supported by them that, you know, build some pieces of the functionality, right? And then you have to think about this whole workflow of like, how do we work on one large assistant as a set of sub teams without stepping on each other's toes, right? And, like, once again, you know, uh, there are lots of good ideas from other kinds of software that you can borrow there, right? Not everything applies, but, but some you can perfectly well transplant. Um, and so I think if you talk to, you know, 10 large enterprises and their teams and how they describe the personas on their team, you will get common patterns of the types of folks who are involved and the types of skill sets that are needed, but a very heterogeneous mix of, like, Job titles and organizations, right? Like this is we're not at a stage where this has been standardized, and everybody, you know, calls things by the same. Um, of course, you've got like content owners and content managers. You've got designers, conversation designers. You've got product owners. You know, you've got data scientists, NLU tuners. Sometimes, um, you know, the question is like, who's who's ultimately responsible for the the quality of your NLU data and your NLU model? Um, uh, those things they just vary, right? I ran a poll like not too long ago where I said like, who in your team is is ultimately responsible for the quality of the data? And it was it was pretty evenly split across like three
0: or four different personas. So. Wow, interesting. It's 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 nice to to um have so much awareness recently. I don't know if it's just salient for me because I've been having a lot of conversations like this recently, but it's nice to see the importance of. NLU quality, quality of training data, monitoring—you know how the performance of different intents become part of the conversation. I think it shows a maturity of the the industry in general and the practitioners within it. Because three years ago, I wasn't having anywhere near as many conversations about NLU accuracy, you know, confidence scores, training data, quality management, and that kind of stuff. I don't know if you thoughts thought to the same in terms of the the maturity yeah, of, of so the industry.
1: For sure, right? And if I think about machine learning and and in this case specifically supervised learning moving from you know something that people do primarily in the research world to now being vastly adopted across different industries and different applications and things right i think one of the things that that took probably longer to translate than it should have is this idea that like when you're publishing a paper typically there's a static benchmark and you tweak the model on, on a static set of data until you get the best performance right and so you get a lot of those ideas <laughs> being transplanted, but I'm like, you don't have to accept a static data set, right? And so there's this whole movement around like data-centric AI, um, which is I think what Andrew Ng calls it. And, you know, what we talk about at Rasa, which is conversation-driven development, is really just the application of, of data-centric AI and what it means in, uh, you know, in, in the conversational world. And you know, if you if you grab a data scientist and you say, Would would you like to have a fancier neural network or better data? Every single one of them is gonna say better data, because that's just what drives the problems, right? And not to get too deep into it, but I think if if you're thinking about a supervised learning problem today, right, the question, can I find a neural network that will fit this data that I've got, it's just not a it's just not a concern in this day and age, right? Like with all the tools, and all the hardware and everything we've got, like the architectures that are well understood, like you will fit your data. The only question really is if I fit this data, will that somehow solve my business problem, right? Does mm-hmm. this data accurately represent the problem that I wanted to solve? That's the that's real challenge, right? And so when you think about applying AI and specifically applying supervised learning, the main task is not tweaking hyperparameters and picking the next best version. The main task is saying, does the data set that I'm training on represent the problem that I actually want to solve, right? Mm. And that's something that, um, that we think a lot about and, and, and build a lot of product for at Rasa, um, which is this process of, of conversation-driven development, right? which is really sort of two key ideas in CDD. One is bringing software development best practices into the world of conversational AI, right? And just saying, hey, look, Maybe you should still write tests. Maybe you should still have the PI server. Maybe you should just still you know, continue deployment because this is a mission critical application. And so you need to treat it as such, right? And the other half of it is to say, hey, look, the problem you need to solve is how can you create a data set that best represents how your users are actually talking? right? And so, so many engineers start off with this problem. And because you always have a cold start problem, nobody, very, very rarely does anybody have data to, to start with. Everybody starts by just like writing five or 10 examples per intent by hand, you know, oh. off the top of their head. Hmm. But I mean, how would you feel, Kane, about getting in a self-driving car that had only been on a test track?
0: <laughs> yeah, or only done 10 laps.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Specifically, right? And I think... Um, the, the the first thing that that you have to make is a mental shift is to at least evaluate your model on on real data, right? Mm. Because that's that, that's the objective truth, right? Like this is what users are saying, and how how are you performing on that? Mm. And then, okay, maybe some synthetic data helps you or whatever else, but like primarily, it's going to be a case of you know gathering real data um, and annotating it, right? And so I, you know, sometimes you come across things where, where people say some really bizarre things that really confuse a lot of ideas where people try and edit the training data before they show it to the model because it's like, oh, this is, this is complicated, right? It's as if you're like, Using you know real driving miles to drive a self-driving car, and you're removing all the miles where there's pedestrians because pedestrians are difficult, and we don't <laughs> want to them. Uh, and, and I don't want the model to learn about pedestrians because they just right. Like th- this is the this is the data you're asking your model in production to make predictions about. So it better have seen some data, right? Like it can't possibly be too hard to see during training, but easy enough to handle in, in, in at, at prediction time, right? That, <laughs> That makes zero sense. I, I saw a really relevant question come up
0: yeah, uh, in the chat, which I might, might jump in on. Yeah, go which on, Angel, Angel. Shout out to Angel. He was okay. on, on the podcast last week from Deutsche Telekom.
1: Yeah, Angel. Uh, I know him very well. Thanks for asking a question, Angel. Um, yeah, what role does tooling play? It is so crucially important. And I, like over the last few years, I've continuously uh, underestimated how sophisticated of tooling you need to do CDD effectively at scale with multiple personas, um, with a large amount of data, right? It's, um, it's a really gnarly and interesting problem, which is you have this stream of data, which is much more than you could ever possibly look at. Right. And if I'm going to invest a human hour (laughs) in, in improving my assistant based on this data, how am I going to know where to spend it? How am I going to spend it wisely? And how am I gonna get feedback that the the hour I just spent was well spent, right? And there are so many interesting subproblems in there, right? And this is what keeps us up at night and keeps us busy over at Rasa, is is building that tooling that enables these large teams um, to do this kind of thing because it's it's easy to explain conceptually, but to make it really efficient and and, and work nicely in like an enterprise setting, this is a this is a journey we're on and um, you know,
0: interesting things coming out of it. So, mm, it's a real it's a real challenge, isn't it? I mean, I've worked uh, in the past before. These tools, like the uh, you know AWS Intent Miner and you know Genesis, have got one. I'm sure Razor's probably got something similar, and Human First and others that have kind of like you can just pipe a bunch of conversations in, and they'll take that real data, roll it up into a bunch of kind of like high level intents, and, and you've almost got a place to start. But even just going through tr- live Chat transcripts before that kind of tool existed, and and going through it and trying to familiarize yourself with. What people are trying to get done, the kind mm. of language that they use, and and trying to pick apart not just training data but structures of conversations and stuff like that. Which I actually recommend people do still because it gets you understanding the the actual complexities of a conversation. But but it's you can't necessarily go ahead and build a production system off the back of an individual person reading thousands of transcripts because it would just take you forever. Um, and so there is a definite real challenge there, especially when you've got something live and it's out there in the wild and you've got a website that's got you know 100,000 visitors a day or you've got a call center that gets 40,000 calls a day something like that and it's like the data is just absolutely abundant and it it, is a nightmare to keep on top of without the accurate too and so so how does Raza deal with that problem you know you've kind of alluded to it keeping you up at night is there something that that you have that that makes this easier now or is it something that you're kind of working on yeah
1: um, I mean, I think maybe maybe quickly, um, uh, just to sort of agree with what you said a second ago, right? I think it's so important, of course, to, to do things at scale and to analyze and look at the numbers and everything else. But there's no better pattern matcher than the human brain, right? And hmm. a really unique thing about conversational AI, unlike other kinds of software, is that we are constantly have the opportunity to look at a transcript and we can exactly understand the whole experience that somebody had right which is is so different from other kinds of software that we build you can look at it and you can empathize and understand exactly what the person wanted and what happened and what didn't happen right? um, but yeah in terms of, of how to solve these problems right so so just had a really interesting conversation with the team uh, today about this it's an intersection of of machine learning problems and like UX and human-computer interaction problems. Right. And it's it's the overlap of the two. Right. Which is why it takes so much brain power to to solve these efficiently and solve these. Well, Um, and yeah, so we have we have a bunch of things already in the product for for doing all these kinds of things. Right. So as I alluded to, we have an insights feature. You know, it analyzes your data overnight, both like the predictions that have been made and like the training data that you have. It looks at like intents that are commonly confused. Looks at things that are frequently predicted with low confidence, all that kind of stuff. So they and then gives you kind of you know actionable uh, things to click on to say, hey, go edit this, go annotate some data for this, right? So that's again, that's one tiny slice of the whole puzzle of saying where should I spend my time, what should I do, and then what feedback can I get that the the changes that I've made are actually impactful, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you need to own that whole journey to be able to answer those questions right um and ultimately tie it to some kind of success rate or roi or something that you're you're trying to generate right because um well you want to know what number you're moving up (laughs) today um so this is a super super active area of development um at rasa we have a whole bunch of uh you know a significant fraction of our of our resources um of our teams, like and 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 brains working on this kind of stuff, of like, how do you, yeah, how do you do this efficiently in a large heterogeneous team with different skill sets, um, and how do you understand the impact of all of that work?
0: Mm, yeah, how do you avoid messing it up, basically, um, cause because <laughs> you could feed you could feed rubbish you know, into the model and and have things go downhill. It was interesting. We spoke to Benoit Alvarez from Qbox recently, and uh, he was talking about the the idea of, you know, getting live transcripts as a basis for your training data being good practice in part. But he made a really interesting observation, which was that if somebody says something like, um, I was on holiday last week and I've lost my credit card, Mm-hmm. then his his observation was that the first part of that utterance is kind of pointless i was on holiday last week it's it's a, in his is not to not to paraphrase but the gist of the conversation was that the first part of that utterance is kind of rubbish and stands a good chance of confusing other parts of the model potentially and so the live transcript might have been i was on holiday last week and lost my credit card the piece that's important is the bit that says I've lost my credit card so you might discard the the first part of the, of the utterance and keep the second part to put into the training data I don't I'm interested in getting your thoughts because you've had a, a bunch of experience on taking real data real customer data building models off the back of it what's your thoughts on taking verbatim utterances using that as training data and rolling with it versus doing some kind of human cleansing of it first
1: yeah well, I mean, what I would say is that you don't get to edit it when the user sends it. You don't get you don't get to uh, edit it in real time, right? So you're still asking your mo- if you're worried about it confusing your model, teach your model not to be confused, right? So this this is the, the, the metaphor I would say is like this is as if you're going and and creating a data set for your self driving car and you're deleting all the confusing situations. Right all the difficult parts, all the bits with pedestrians, all the bits with bad weather, like <laughs> <madness>. <laughs> And so, I mean, I think that there's, there's a real amount of truth to that, there's a, there's a kernel of truth to that, right? Which is not to be dismissed, which is that, as you say, the first part of the sentence is, is meaningless in that case, right? And the person could provide any kind of context, right? And really what you want to do is the model should have some kind of invariance to that, and should only pay attention to that, right? And I mean, that's also a very active area of, of machine learning research. Is you know, can you encode that kind of domain knowledge, right? To say, hey, look, actually, only this part is really salient, um, and and I'm sure we can build better models uh, to, to 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 learn to ignore those things. But I think pretending that they don't happen isn't setting your model up for success, right? And if you if you're evaluating on that cleaned up data as well, you're probably going to trick yourself into thinking your model's performing really well because you're only evaluating on the on the easy cases that you that you cleaned up to help the model out. Mm, interesting. And first things first. Please, please, please evaluate on real data.
0: Mm, that's really interesting. So, so, and also, and this would require, I think, some some pretty sophisticated NLU capabilities, but. You miss out on the opportunity to provide a really personalized experience, which is that in an ideal world, what a human would do in that case would be if someone says I was on holiday and I lost my credit card. That's different to somebody saying, can you freeze my credit card? Probably the same intent, but completely different kind of context and so a human would say oh I'm sorry about that, hope you had a nice holiday otherwise or build rapport like that referring to what was just said and I suppose you know whether that sounds like a bit of a sophisticated thing for a bot to be able to do is is recognize the first part and, and reference it next to say that I understand you're on holiday and I hope you had a nice time otherwise, but let me get get me, let me get your card frozen. But that's the kind of really personalized use cases and interactions that I think we'll be heading towards in future. And you probably sacrifice the ability to create those if you do tamper with the data.
1: Yeah, well, and and you know how I feel about intense, King.
0: <laughs> I do I do I'm interested I'm interested in getting this on record because uh yeah. I've 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 read a lot and heard a lot about your uh, your uh, thoughts on intense and and I've I've actually been doing quite a bit of research myself around you know the whole transformer model and we had Jason Mars from zero shot bot and uh we had uh, Chandra Katri from uh, Got it AI and stuff uh been looking at you know interested in exploring those kind of like transformer based models and stuff and they're all kind of very much about uh Intentless NLUs. So I'm really oh. curious to kind of kind of get your thoughts on on that. Like, what what is in your view? What is the what's the what's the fundamental problem with intents? Maybe to start.
1: Yeah, I mean, the first thing I'll say is that I love intents, and I think they're <laughs> um, So so okay. So what do we mean when we say intents? Right. We have the list of all possible things that humans might say in a conversation, which is infinite. And we are collapsing that down into a problem where we're saying a user is going to say one of these 20, 30, 40 things. They're going to say, hello, they're going to say, yes, no, thank you, I need a credit card, whatever it might be, right? And that is a phenomenal simplification of the task of understanding any possible structure, right? Um, I gave a talk about this recently, and a sentence I pulled up was... um, Uh, like Iceland's president admits he went too far with threat to ban pineapple pizza or something along (laughs) those right and like you you know you can understand that sentence it has all sorts of interesting compositional structure a lot of it actually isn't really language understanding it's like common sense it's you understanding the world that you and I inhabit right there might be Mm. other humans on this planet who would have no relevant context or know why pineapple pizza is controversial or whatever else (laughs) So there's so much going on there, right? And that's that's an almost impossible problem. And we're not asking to solve that problem. We're just saying, hey, look, pick which of these 20 things the person is saying, right? But of course, like, that's not how humans talk. Humans don't dream up the intent they would like to express and then think of a way to cluster that, right? And so mm. the example that you gave... Right. I've been on holiday. You know, the, what the person is saying is perfectly clear. They're telling you a, a very clear story. Right. And we as developers, we think of this as like ambiguity, but it's yeah. not ambiguity, right. Like The person is telling you something about their life, about their experience. It's very direct. It's factual. Right. And it's only ambiguous to us because we're not sure how to help them yeah. or, we're, or or, you know, we've got to figure out what the right thing is to do. Right. And so it's on us as developers, as as, and I mean that in the broader sense of people who are building assistants. Um, it's on us to 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 understand that and and uh, and cater to that. And I don't think it's uh, impossible by any means to answer both those things effectively, right? And ask for a nice message about the holiday, you know, um, hope you had a nice relaxing time, and then and then get to the task at hand. That doesn't, you know, of all the hard problems in ML, that that seems like a doable one. Mm. Um, what it does point to in this particular case is that this message isn't mapped to a single intent, right? In any case, it's not a single intent, right? Um, And so you have this fantastic simplification of the problem, which is all I have to do is pick one of these 20 labels and that's my understanding of what the user says. Mm. But that's a very impoverished model of understanding, (laughs) like you're not understanding it correctly. And, and there's so much nuance and there's so much more to language, right? And so not every message fits into one intent neatly, right? And sometimes the intent is purely contextual, right? And so the example I gave in the blog post that you mentioned is, you know, if you recommend to the user to have a, you know, the users talk about restaurants and you say, how about Chinese food? And the user says, I had that yesterday, right? That's a very sort of pragmatic implication uh, and and you and I might say, well, you know, probably they want something else. A computer mm-hmm. might say, hey, well, they have they had it. Maybe they have it every night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: There's uh, another we, good one which you referenced, which was that uh, it was something to do with an airline booking, and it's the 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 bot said something like, um, I can't remember what it said specifically, but it said something like, have, you, "Have are you delayed or something like that?" And the user replied, "Unfortunately," which right. was actually a yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: unfortunately. As an intent example for the intent, yes, or I had that yesterday as an example for the intent, no, doesn't make any sense, right? It's only in that particular context. And so, um, so what we talk about in that blog post is, you know, some experimental work that we did on saying, hey, look, it doesn't actually matter what the intent is. What matters is do you know how to respond to the user? So, you know, this middle intermediate step of picking the right intent, let's just skip it and go straight from the message to, the, to predicting the correct next action, right? And we can mm. contemplatively interpret it in this particular case. Now that has a whole, sort, a whole other set of like data management problems and how do you build these kind of end-to-end stories and everything else. So that's um, also non-trivial, but I think it, uh, you know, I, I don't think we're ever gonna build, um, you know, truly sophisticated, conversational AI by cramming every message into one intent, right? That just fundamentally more.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. Are are you familiar with a company called Action AI? I am not, no. So so they've got a very interesting approach to this, which is that I think they technically use intents kind of, but they're more concerned with the semantic understanding of the words that were said so they 're not interested necessarily in saying that means this intent let 's go and do this they 're more interested in working out the semantics and the composition and the ontology behind the words that are said and then determining they 've got pretty sophisticated like entity recognition so that helps you know figure out yeah. what's what 's um, what but they can do things like uh, yeah i 'm assuming that you could build this with Raza uh, potentially but things like if someone says, that, that, that example there, I went on holiday and I lost my credit card. They might have, like, typically that might be too intense I went on holiday, it might not be an intent as in I want to do something, but it's valuable information that can be used in a, in a response. And then I lost my credit card is something that has subtext to it, which is I want to report my credit card as stolen or lost or whatever. And so because they don't necessarily strictly use intents as we would know them, and they use this kind of like granular semantic understanding, which when combined with combined with the speech recognition actually begins to predict what's going on in the sentence as it's said rather than feeding text to an NLU and then figuring it out so it's about pretty sophisticated stuff but a long-winded way of saying I totally concur with with what you're saying around you know the, the skipping yeah. of the intent part providing you can get the semantic understanding right
1: yeah yeah. yeah. And for what it's worth for that particular case, you can have, uh, you can have multi-intents in browser. So you can predict two intents for one message. So there's at least something, but then there's still the, the, you still have to, uh, you know, take care of the other half. Right. Um, yeah. Cause it's, it's, it's nice to say that you've detected two intents, but how do those meanings compose together? If it's, you've detect, detected, uh, if it's, if somebody says, yeah, no,
0: yeah composition
1: a neutral statement about going on a holiday and then a direct request so so you can't just like arbitrarily compose intent labels together either so you still need to use some human brain power to uh to figure out what to do with it on the
0: other side interesting interesting We're, we're, we're almost on time i'd be curious to get your thoughts on let's say that we were to draw a kind of a continuum a line from kind of like the beginnings of natural language processing you know you can go back if you want as far as Audrey and shoebox and stuff like that but let's say let's say the beginning of production value natural human-like conversational assistance I think you mentioned 2016 with like Facebook Messenger and when dialogue acquired API.ai AI and all that kind of stuff let's maybe use that. If you were to draw a line and say, there'll be a point in time where the tooling has everything that's needed. The problem of language understanding is pretty much solved. Uh, and we have everything we need to be able to create those, you know, absolutely faultless AI experiences. Where do you think we are on that continuum? Oh, goodness me, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: I think we've got a long ways to go. I mean, so, so, um, We have a maturity model we talk about at Rasa um, of the five levels of of conversational AI, right? I think we are, um, you know, still trying to make true level three become a reality, right? And so, um, you know, never make predictions, especially
0: about the future, I wouldn't (laughs) say much longer. uh, going to take um, It doesn't need to uh, have a timeline on it. Right? Just, just like where, where do you think we are? As let's say, like a hundred percent is we're, we're, you know, we're finished. We've got everything we need. We can, we can kind of just, you know, build, build some, some good stuff. Versus zero being we can't understand a word that anyone's saying.
1: Twenty percent. If you're gonna put me on the spot, that's where we are. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. Interesting. Interesting. But isn't that isn't that interesting though that there is actually some pretty there's some bad stuff being built. And everyone's had a really bad experience with a chatbot and a voice bot. But actually there's some pretty decent stuff being built. There's some, you know, the businesses are using it, they're getting value from it. Come uh, bit Consumers and users are uh, kind of understanding where the limitations are at the moment. They're using them. There's actually surveys out there with people desiring more interactions with AI assistants and stuff like that. So from where we are, if we are 20% towards solving the full kind of language understanding problem, then I think that's actually pretty good progress.
1: I I agree. I mean, I'm obviously very bearish on on the (laughs) technology. <laughs> we doing, right? And, and you know, we see the, the fantastic success that, that our customers uh, achieve with you know deploying conversational AI and it has a huge impact on, on businesses, right? Um and so I guess I would decouple the things, right? If you were to ask me the question of like, you know, how far in the realm of like having a meaningful impact on business today are we? We're very much further along, right? We we do that fantastically well. If we, um yeah, if we think about the
0: the, the perfect assistant. It's a, it's a longer way away. Nice. Wicked. That's interesting. Well, Alan, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, as I said, genuine. Everyone, no, you're welcome. More than welcome. And I'm happy to do this as and when you would like to. I'm a big fan of Raza. Uh, love the conversation. For those tuning in on the podcast or on LinkedIn or YouTube, raza.com, R-A-S-A dot com. As Alan was saying, there's an open source uh, capability there which you can have a look at if you're getting more sophisticated you can obviously have a look at the enterprise uh edition and yeah as I said at the beginning lots of uh companies that I wasn't really I wouldn't have known basically I went to that conference the other week and, and you know I would say about 30 to 40% of the companies that were talking about what they've deployed were using Raza. um so you know placed in a kind of magic quadrant, you know, well adopted by large enterprises, really good understanding of the technology and what needs to happen to make these things work really well. So yeah, hats off to you and uh, yeah, good luck. And thanks very much. So do join me next week when um, next week what will be happening. I'll just quickly pull it up while you're here. Uh, Audio codes webinar on Tuesday. Uh, we've got Matt Smallman on the podcast on Wednesday talking about voice biometrics that's going to be an absolutely epic one Uh, and we have OpenStream on the podcast on Thursday uh, discussing the OpenStream approach so thank you for joining us thank you again Alan it's been absolutely immense thank you everyone for listening nice one Big soon